Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's time to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty with Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. And that's us. Hey, good morning. John here with you. And uh, how are you this morning? A bit raining, a bit cold. Dirt Radio, of course, Friends of the Earth. We're in Melbourne and they sponsor our program. You can catch them at foe.org.au. And want to thank Yara Bug again for a great program. Modern elections inevitably draw attention to the tactics and influence of lobby groups, which have a lot to gain or lose depending on which party takes power. And if you're part of the environment movement in Australia, it's the fossil fuel industry that particularly gets your attention. George Rennie has been doing research on the growing influence of lobbyists in the political process, both here and in the United States. Welcome to Dirt Radio. It's great to be here, John. Thanks for coming in. Let's just start the start with setting the scene. You've argued, and I'm taking from an article that you wrote in the conversation. You argue that over the <clears throat> excuse me over the past twenty years, lo- the lobby industry has grown exponentially in Australia. Can you explain a few outstanding examples that might be relevant to the current election? Sure. Um, I think there are many. Uh, you know, the mind boggles a little bit with that question because uh, there are so many uh, examples of how lobbying affects uh, uh, modern democracy, um, especially in Australia. Um, that uh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll go with what I've been finding most interesting lately, which which I think is interesting in part because it's been an election non-issue. But it should be a big part of it. So that's the negotiations over the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, um, and specifically a clause within it, which is um, what's known as the ISDS clause, or the um, Investor-State Dispute Settlement Mechanism. And you know, this all sounds very technical, and it is, but what's so interesting about it is if it gets passed and it's part of the TPP, it makes it extraordinarily difficult for countries like Australia to implement, say, environmental legislation or anything that um, can adversely affect the profits of a company. Now, the reason why this is to do with lobbying is because when uh, something like a free trade agreement is negotiated, the parties to the agreement that negotiate it are largely corporate groups and representatives, lobbyists of corporate mm. groups, stakeholders in the sense of representatives in government, but you won't then get countervailing voices. So, for instance, you Friends of the Earth doesn't have a shot of getting in the meetings, <laughs> sorry to say, but nor, yeah, to, bigger, <laughs> nor to bigger organisations. So it could be the Australian Conserva- uh, Conservation Foundation or it could be the um, WWF or, you know, it, it, it could be Greenpeace, it could be any organisation of mm. any stature, and, and despite representing millions of people in Australia or the views of millions, uh, hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of people, if you, if you have a very loose understanding of views, mm. Mm. Um, they don't get a look in. So that's one of many examples of where 
uh, the sort of behind closed door lobbying will significantly affect an election. The um, I, I think I think the TPP is an extremely good example, and and we've talked about this on on Dirt Radio before. In fact, and uh, the point you're making about uh, n- environmental protection protections is is really critical, and I think it does connect to. I suppose you could say the fossil fuel industry, but also all kinds of other things to do with intellectual property, tech corporations. We've we've had these discussions on yeah. the radio before as well. You can take your pick in terms of what is affected. It's it's it really is anything that any legislation or any changes to the regulatory environment that can affect profits. Now you can imagine that in a country like Australia where so many so much of our industry is based in heavily heavy pollution so you know the mining industry is mm. an obvious example and we've already seen that they're more than willing to lobby hard lobby us as well that's the mining tax ads that we saw in yes. 2010 um, and and uh, use any avenue they can, especially legal avenues, then any attempts to significantly block profitability will be significantly resisted and can be resisted in a more effective way by something like the ISDS. Um, we, we, and, and if you look to Canada, if you look to Europe, where they have ISDS clauses with, say, the United States or internally in Europe, there are many, many examples of successful... Uh, litigation by corporations that prevent meaningful environmental yes. change I think, in, in the sense of limitations on pollution, etc. I think, uh, look, I, I just, just offhand, I'm, I think I read something about Quebec being, being uh, sued by the United States for taking up environmental issues where the original contract basically was saying those kinds of things either get ignored or... Um, you know, sort of left out of the out of the equation. Absolutely, um, numerous examples. Look, I wanted to turn to something else, and this is an astonishing statistics again. Again, from from your very interesting article in the conversation, you said in the United States, around fifty percent of ex legislators become lobbyists. It's not so prevalent here. You've also said, but thinking in, in terms of the mining industry or in terms of fossil fuel industry, the revolving door process that is you be you you are a politician you become a lobbyist or vice versa uh that's happening here as well that is and i say i do uh, you know thank you for pointing out that we're not um i'm tempted to say as bad as the united states in that sense but we've all you know observers of of australian politics will uh, will notice that there tends to be a lag effect between what happens in the united states and what happens here so Sure, the United States, the statistic about uh, around 50% of ex-legislators, it's more than 50% of senators. And, of course, in the United States, senators are more powerful. So you can imagine, what, you can imagine how, how much of a deleterious effect that can have on democracy where you have former legislators that make decisions about a given project then going and working for the companies that they made the decisions for mm. it sounds complex, but I think you take oh, the no, meaning. I... And um, the, the same thing is happening here, and it's increasing here. So yeah, we're not at fifty percent, but there's no reason to think we won't be. The incentives, kind of perverse incentives, well, they are often perverse incentives to head down that route are significant. So unless we do something to try and stem the problems of lobbying, 
Um, and, and I really need to stress that lobbying is necessary. You can't have representative government without lobbying. You ha- and, of course, businesses have a right to sit at the table and put their views. Mm-hmm. It's, the problem is not that that's occurring. The problem is the way in which that's occurring, the extent to which it's occurring, and the disproportionality of it, where you can have a situation like, again, to link back to the environment, the ev- environment often has literally no voice at negotiations. And yet, one mining company can have huge, a huge voice. Yeah, yeah. Just the example of the, uh, the revolving door. The one I'm thinking of is Martin Ferguson, who was the Minister of Resources, finished his job and became uh, a board member for I'm not sure what company it was, but was connected to the mining industry, and it could have even could be the uranium industry as well. Yeah, the idea that that isn't. A conflict of interest that we should be concerned about is crazy. Mm. Um, you know, there there will be people who say, "No, well, there's no right." You know, w- w- you know, or, or rather, they say, uh, "No, that's completely fine." You know, there's se- it's separate lives. He's no longer a politician. He can no longer influence things. That's that that's wrong-headed on two fundamental levels, in the sense that it's completely wrong. The first is Martin Ferguson made decisions that benefited the companies that he now works. You know, and this is this is I can make this more broad. You'll often have legislators make decisions that benefit the companies they go to work for. That's a clear conflict of interest in the mm-hmm. sense that there's a delay between the decision and the reward. Now, the only reason that's not technically corrupt is, or the only way that isn't technically corrupt, and the, and the reason it isn't technically corrupt in the vast majority of incident, incidences, is the company never explicitly says, this is quid pro quo, you do this and we'll give you that. So long as they don't say that or, or infer it in such a strong way that a court would find it a clear mm-hmm. breach, it's not illegal. Now, that is crazy. And then there's the secondary factor, which is even if Martin Ferguson didn't benefit those companies when he was in office, when he was in power, he has a chance to now because he 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 has mates all over the place and he can go and talk to them. And yes. again, you have that huge disconnect. Uh, uh, ma- major corporations will have that disproportionate say because of it. And important things like public goods, like the environment, like all sorts of other public goods, just don't get a look in. Or, again, it's such a small looking mm. that it's worrying and it really is undermining our democracy. You've mentioned uh, <clears throat> earlier about the um, the coal industry or the, the fossil fuel industry sort of working to subvert the carbon tax and, and those kinds of things. They've obviously got an enormous advantage in terms of money. An interesting thing that you brought up and I'm aware of is that there's also ways in which social media now works to subvert those kinds of i what i'm thinking of is the coal industry put out some ads earlier in the year talking about coal is great for humanity i mean that was tony abbott but that this great little black rock was going to transform the world and there was a huge kind of social media wave of of subverting it memes that kind of undermined it and stuff I just wanted to get your opinion because that that is a, a form of lobbying. And what do you think about the the kind of is that a way of rebalancing the equation? It does rebalance the equation somewhat. <clears throat> you can't, you still can't make up for the power of uh, on air advertisements. They still uh, disproportionately affect the electorate. Um, one of the problems with social media is that it tends to influence people who already agree. So people who disagree 
just don't click it, don't get it, don't read it, whatever. Mm. But the way in which social media is great, I don't want to sound like a total cynic here, uh, the way in oh. which it's fantastic is that if um, there is enough of a critical mass, you can cause embarrassment or, or whatever it is. Now, if we're talking about a, a company that has a public face, so a company that sells consumer goods, social media is incredibly powerful. Um, in fact, those companies will often disproportionately panic and err on the side of caution when there's a social media campaign. If you're talking about a mining company, it's much tougher because they don't have that consumer mm. face. So it becomes much more difficult. But the ways in which social media can work are essentially by ridicule. That can be great if you can mock them successfully. It, it kind of... Mm. No one likes to be embarrassed. We like to think of businesses often as being very rational. It's just not true. They're sort of psychological beasts just as we mm. are. You only need to look at markets to see that, as in equity markets, financial stocks, things like that. Um, but embarrassing them can work very well. And then the other way you can do it is if there is enough of a, again, that critical mass on social media, it does sometimes at least force the hand of governments. They sort of think, well, the risk-reward is too much... It's, it's, it's against us on this one, so we've got to back down. Um, w democracy is in some senses being subverted, but we do have to remember that at the end of the day, we, we do have a, a, a functional democracy, and, it, and, it, and it's highly functional in the sense that if we can mobilise votes, you can trust that those votes translate mm. to changes. It's just that the problem is it can be so hard to mobilise those votes because of apathy in the general electorate that, you know, that, that's where the problems really lie. George, we've got a lot more to discuss, unfortunately. I've got to, we've got to finish up here. <laughs> I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, are there places where people listening or anybody can go to, to find out a little bit more about what you, you've been talking about? Yeah, well, um, you talked about the article that I wrote for the conversation. Um, uh, it's a great website. It's it's free. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's free and it's ad free and all that kind of stuff. It's yep. funded by universities and donations. Yep. We, uh, the article that I wrote was the um, introductory article to a series on lobbying that included some major groups, and I urge people to track that down. I can give you a link. No, no, we've got, uh, definitely got it, okay. and we'll be putting it on our, our web, uh, web page and uh, on the three CR page as well. Uh, the Guardian has a really great uh, uh, section that deals with lobbying. But unfortunately, it's UK-focused. So, you know, you know, you'll get little tidbits like that. I don't think Australian uh, media outlets have the focus mm. that they should, but that's slowly changing. Well, look, let's catch up uh, a little bit in the future to hear a bit more about this stuff because the government's going to be changing and uh, or maybe changing or maybe not. <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, lobbying is clearly part of the process, the political process at this point. So thanks for, so much for coming in for Dirt Radio. It's my great pleasure. Thanks, John. And uh, talking there with George Rennie, he's a researcher and he writes on the increasing influence of lobbyists in the political process. We're Dirt Radio and we'll be back right after this. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377. 
You're back with Dirt Radio, and uh, we are Friends of the Earth Connected, sponsored by Friends of the Earth. Sounds like a little bit of a uh, mining fossil fuel-themed show today. Currently, there are 50,000 mines lying abandoned all across the country. Companies drill a hole, dig up the ground, and then say, well, cheerio, and walk away from the site unrehabilitated. Rick Humphreys is the coordinator of Lock the Gates Mine Rehabilitation Reform Campaign. The campaign's just started, and he's talking to us from Queensland to explain what's been happening. Good morning, Rick. Morning, John. How are you? Good. Now, 50,000 mines across the country left abandoned. Now, I've got no idea how to assess this, but it seems like a staggering number. How does this get allowed to be happening? happen? I think a lot of those mines go a long way back uh, to a time before any regulation, and that's not to say the regulation that we have in place now is adequate, because that's what this is all about. Many of them are also very small, and particularly in Victoria, where there are 19,000 abandoned mines. A lot of them are single shafts or relics of the the gold rush. Uh, But having said that, uh, there are some very, very large mines uh, that lay abandoned, that are leaching toxic, hot saline uh, and acid mine drainage into Australia's precious water courses. Uh, and they're the ones we really need to focus on up front. Rick, uh, Rick I was going to ask you, uh, you're just hinting at the kind of environmental damage. Give us a little bit more detail on the sorts of things that can happen if a mine is, a big mine particularly, is left simply abandoned and not rehabilitated. What, what generally happens is, in terms of uh, large mines, is that the industry has a very strong preference, and this is not historic, this is today, uh, to leave what they call a final void. So after they dig the overburden and the minerals out of the ground, the cheapest option for them is to leave the hole there, not backfill it. Now, that also means that all their mine waste, a lot of it which is toxic, acidic, and has large environmental impacts, are either left in constructed waste rock dumps uh, and mine tailings down. So what you effectively get is the lowest cost option for the industry is to basically uh, put some icing on a very nasty cake and walk away. But the net result of that sort of approach to mine closure is you'll get a lot of legacy issues that have some big impacts on the immediate area and the immediate communities, particularly when it comes to ground and surface water. And as we know, our precious groundwater and surface water resources in this country is one of the most controversial issues. And I think one of the things that your listeners really need to focus on if they're interested in this issue is the impact of mine legacies on, on water, uh, groundwater, surface water, and all the things that go with that in terms of farmers, wildlife, health and safety, uh, public safety, a whole range of issues that stem from that. Yeah, look, it's. Uh, I, I think you're, you've you've really narrowed it down to exactly the the major point there. I, something very interesting. I and you have a very good website. In fact, there's a report that uh, you've produced, and I'll, we're going to put that on our uh, our Facebook page and our our website, Dirt Radio website as well. But one of the things that was interesting to me to read was uh, you've done a summary of six ways that mines. Miners are able to dodge the cleanup costs, and one of those is um, simply declaring bankruptcy before they do the cleanup, 
which means that state governments and the taxpayer become responsible for the rehabilitation. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? And is this particularly the case in Queensland? This is the case everywhere, and it relates to medium to small miners. Although in the case of Peabody Coal, Peabody Energy, which is a very large, um, the world's largest coal miner, they're in Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings in the United States. Uh, and their local arm, Peabody Australia, is highly indebted. So we may well see a very large multinational fall over. The net result of that, because of the inadequate financial assurance, which is those bonds that companies are meant to pay that would allow the rehabilitation of those mines in the case of bankruptcy, they're wholly inadequate. What we might see with Peabody is... Uh, their operations falling over, leaving a huge legacy in the Hunter Valley and the Bowen Basin in Queensland. So that, that's, that's a, a particular situation with a large company. But in the main, it's medium to small size enterprises that basically take the money and run. They make good profits in the boom time. Uh, the, cost of, uh, the cost of mining, particularly with the downturn in commodity prices, means that the operation becomes economic. They declare bankruptcy. Uh, they declare the parent company that owns that particular mine bankrupt. And really, there's not a lot to do in terms of the government chasing the money to try to uh, make good on the rehab. Because again, generally, the bond that the government requires up front to protect the taxpayer in the event of bankruptcy is generally inadequate. So yeah, we need mm. a wholesale reform around how we approach uh, mine closure and mine rehabilitation and that's what the Lock the Gate campaign is all about. There are specific instances but unless we get you know, fundamental reform we're going to be fighting these spot battles into the future uh, and we need all Australians to basically start to get their head around this whole question of abandoned mines, these questions of these bankruptcies uh, and what the mining industry is in reality leaving behind versus what you read on their websites. And in Australia, my understanding is that there are a lot of miners, a lot of particularly in the fossil fuel area, who are looking at uh, bankruptcy or certainly uh, downturns in their business. And uh, this is where your campaign comes in. Well, that's right. I think you know during the boom time, the the the, the prevailing wisdom in the mining industry is to maximise the cash flow and the profit. So. Anything that any of the resources that aren't directed to that, you know, don't get funded. And, and mine closure and rehabilitation is one of those. Now we're in the downturn. The mining industry sticking out their hand for tax concessions, pleading poor, and not having enough money, enough cash flow, again, to adequately provision for closure and rehabilitation. So the mining industry typically wants it both ways, uh, and hence that's why we need greater safeguards to protect the taxpayer and future generations from companies just refusing to fulfil their obligations or in the, indeed going bankrupt. Uh, and the industry has got away with this for far too long. The irony is most of the large mining companies have what they call provisions, which is a line item on their, on their account that sets aside very large amounts of money to facilitate closure. Uh, so in the case of the larger companies, the money is there. Uh, what we need is stronger regulators mm. to actually step in and force these companies 
to actually do the right thing. And part of this campaign is getting a lot of public pressure on the regulators to step up finally and look after the public interest, whereas before, behind closed doors, there's generally been sweetheart deals done between the mining industry and the regulators to facilitate more mines and give them a bit of a free ride on rehabilitation. And that's primarily because there hasn't been a lot of public interest and scrutiny about those deals, and we need to flush that out into the open and make sure that the companies step up and do the right thing because when they sign on to develop these mines, there is always an agreement that they will fix up the mess at the end of the day. Uh, and what we're seeing now is, you know, the chickens coming home to roost with a lot of these very large mines uh, uh, coming out of production. It's time that the regulators stepped up and really forced those conditions and forced the companies to pay. Now, we're down in Melbourne, Rick. Uh, tell us a little bit about how we can find out a bit more about the campaign. And uh, I understand it that you are looking for donations. And uh, tell us a little bit how, how we can get involved. Well, I think I was just listening to the uh, uh, the previous interview around social media and what have you. This is, as most campaigns are these days, a social media-based campaign. This is a, a big issue for all Australians. Um, it's really about finally getting those reforms in place to hold the mining industry to account. So we would encourage everybody to look at the Lock the Gate website. If you want to give us a few, Bob, that'd be fantastic. But please sign up because at the end of the day, we've got to direct a lot of public outrage. And I think there's a lot out there once people understand the situation uh, towards the regulators. Um, but I guess my little disagreement with the previous um, speaker's uh, uh, suggesting that mining companies don't have sort of retail brands. I think many of them are very brand sensitive. That's why they generally hide behind the Minerals Council of Australia or the Queensland Resources Council or whatever the equivalent is in Victoria to do their business. But we need to start targeting specific companies, demanding that they step up and fulfil their moral and legal obligations on mine closure. So I'd invite all Victorians and particularly listeners to 3CR to, to join the campaign because I think we get enough people engaged and enough pressure on, particularly after what happened in Victoria with the Hazelwood inquiry, hmm. uh, we can get strong, lasting change that will, will shift the goalposts uh, and hopefully we won't need to have this conversation in five or ten years' time because uh, the industry will be forced to step up and do the right thing uh, and make sure that their legacies you know, are very, very low impact uh, and basically protect current taxpayers and future generations. Rick, thanks so much for being with us. We've got to leave it at that, but uh, you were saying we'll, 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 we will have another conversation a bit later in the year, see how you're going, and uh, thanks so much for being with Dirt Radio this morning. A pleasure, John. Thanks very much. Rick Humphreys is the coordinator of the Lock the Gate Mine Rehabilitation Reform Campaign. The campaign's just kicking off. They're looking looking for support and donations, and we'll put the details up on our Dirt Radio Facebook page and also on the 3CR podcast page. You're with Dirt Radio, and we are just about out of time. Speak to you next week.